We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning on this snowy March uh, morning. What is it, the 13th? Is next, is next Sunday the beginning of spring? Yes, 20th, all right. On the calendar, right. We'll see if it is in practice or only in theory here. Well, we're glad to be here in any case. And I want to welcome those of you that are online. I think we have a little higher attendance online today because of the weather and uh, hopefully not just because of the time change, but uh, we are here and enjoying fellowship together at the church and uh, with you online, uh, hopefully provide some edification for you as well. Our reading is in Ezekiel 28 today, Ezekiel 28. Always know that Ezekiel's just before Daniel. You're looking for it. Although maybe I should say Daniel's always after Ezekiel, since Ezekiel's the larger book. Ezekiel 28. We continue reading about the lamentation and proclamation against Tyre, and then we'll touch on Sidon in a little bit and a review a refreshing word at the end about God's restoration of the nation of Israel. And uh, there is some debate here in chapter 28 as to where exactly this goes with regard to the devil himself. And so uh, see if you can pick that up as we read in Ezekiel 28. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, And you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God. Though you set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because... Of your riches. Notice, if you would, the sarcasm that I added there a little bit to the reading. Verse 6 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? But you shall be a man and not a God. In the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Remember, God is a jealous God. There is no God before him. He knows no other, and he will not give his glory to another. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side. Then they shall know that I am the Lord." And there shall be no longer a prickling briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. 25. Thus says the Lord God. Hear the word, folks. Hear the word, please. Let's give attention to the word. Thus says the Lord God. When I have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. And they will dwell safely there, build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Their brother Tim is another build houses verse. But this one, of course, speaking of a future restoration of Israel and not during their time of captivity in Babylon, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 29. That was a couple of Saturday meetings ago that we did that. I want to just share, finish up sharing what I was working through this morning in Sunday school with you folks, and then go to our message in Philippians. Uh, We talked about some Bible questions this morning, and uh, one of the questions I want to revisit was one that uh, we had done a number of Q&A sessions on with regard to the COVID pandemic, especially back in 2020 in um, April and May. And I went back and reviewed all that material. And uh, I didn't review actually the letters that we had written to you folks uh, back then, but the things that we presented publicly, I did. And I wanted to just kind of give a little retrospective, a little thought, a little review on it. And uh, hopefully it will be helpful to us. As I mentioned this morning, this is the second year anniversary of the weekend that we went into lockdown uh, in, in March of 2020. It was around that March 12th to 15th range that things started to go sideways and we had all these problems. And so I'll just give a little bit of review about that. Some of you are new to the church since the beginning of the, of the pandemic or right around that time, so I thought it would be good to just give a little bit of review and think about this. I gave on April 11th, 2021, so a year ago almost, I gave a lengthy message on the COVID vaccine and how Christians should think through the whole situation. I reviewed that message last week and found only that a little bit of it had aged poorly. Um, There's additional data now, which is kind of unavoidable, obviously. We couldn't have the data in advance. Um, And I could use that to update those notes, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to leave it static so we have a snapshot of what what we had back then. I'm much more concerned, though, uh, regarding that message than I was a year ago about the side effects of the vaccinations. And I'm not going to go into that in this message, but I just let you know that I'm deeply concerned about some of the things that I'm seeing and uh, and, and, and also about the all relative lack of effectiveness compared to what was initially promised to us. So that is kind of a a wrap-up on that um, idea. The reason, however, that the message aged well generally was that much of it was based on timeless biblical principles. These principles are always true no matter the circumstances, and I might say especially because of difficult circumstances even in difficult times. The Word of God applies all the time. I said, I think, I don't know if it's in this, these notes here. I'm just looking ahead. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, 
the Bible in Hebrews 10 tells us to gather together for worship regularly. And I said in my notes somewhat humorously, there is no footnote there, you know, see asterisk, unless there's a pandemic. You know, that's not written there in the scriptures. So what did we learn during the past two years? I just thought I'd review some lessons learned with this. Thankfully, as I recall, in Michigan, we did not have to break any law to continue to gather for worship and to do so without wearing masks. No, not so in other states, but we did, we did learn a little bit about... Whoops, sorry. I'm uh, not accustomed to using my computer up here on the pulpit, as you know. Um, not so in other states, but we did learn a little bit about what it feels like to have to push back a little bit against the society and against the kind of prevailing idea that at the time, and I think persists even to some extent today, you are evil if you gather together because you are endangering society uh, for doing that. So we, to obey God, we had to, you know, kind of get into the mindset a little bit of civil disobedience here. In other states, they had to do so and uh, and our neighbors to the north really had problems in that regard. In general, we learned that the governing authorities do not care to protect religious liberty. Some did, thankfully in Michigan, a little better than other places, but uh, many in the populace did not care to uh, protect those liberties. Um, We reminded ourselves that church is essential. To use a word, remember that, essential, that was always there back two years ago. After getting our bearings in the initial couple of months, we found that it was completely feasible to meet together, uh, again, with very little danger to all of us here. Uh, I say after initial couple of months to get our bearings because we were told, and it seemed the statistics were frighteningly bad, uh, but they didn't turn out to be as bad as what that, those initial numbers were. Uh, what steps did we take? Well, we took steps to prudently do distancing amongst ourselves. And uh, that's one key, I think, um, that helps to reduce the spread of disease. We reinforced our health policy for church attendance. We maximized our airflow in the uh, room, especially this room, at some cost of discomfort to us, but, you know, we live with it. Uh, We added ultraviolet light disinfection to the airflow system. That's just another practical step that's going on right behind that wall there right now as we speak and in the fellowship hall as well. We thoroughly cleaned the air handler for the auditorium. Those investments cost, I'll estimate, probably four or $5,000 to do those things, maybe six. Um, And the results of all of this was that we had zero or nearly zero case transmission in the church. Uh, In our experience, almost all the the transmission of cases was family transmission, family gatherings. Uh, There was some obviously picking up from outside, but um, not as far as we know in the church. I'm pleased, as I go back to lessons learned, that we could meet for nearly two years and not have our lives halted entirely. Had we stopped, like some were saying initially, and even suggesting that it would be six months, nine months, even a year or more before we would be able to gather, we would have lost two years of edification. We would have lost two years of being together. We would have lost two years of worship. We would have lost two years of obeying God. That's a significant chunk of our lives when you think about it. Two years, 104 Sundays, uh, 700-odd 800-odd days, 700-odd days, sorry. You know, it's a long time. I realized also early on that it's wrong, and I wrote this on my blog, it's wrong for churches to prohibit willing people from coming to worship. Um, I never had to have that thought before. It never crossed my mind that churches would say, you are not allowed to come and worship here. But that happened. That happened in many churches, so-called churches, uh, and churches who have lost their way throughout the course of the early months of the pandemic. I heard people, even up to a year ago, just starting to dabble their toes back into gathering for worship. And, you know, I, I concluded back in April, May, two years ago, it is wrong for me to prohibit people from coming to worship. You understand what I'm saying? But I never had that thought in the previous two decades of ministry. I would have never had the occasion to think that thought. Why would some 
church pastor, deacon board, close the church and not allow people to come. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, wouldn't have been a thought, but it was for this case in this time. We learned, uh, again, to practice love and forbearance with one another. As some delayed in returning, others wore masks and others did not. This was excellent practice for us to receive one another, as Romans 14 says, and not to disputation about doubtful matters. We had to practice applying the doctrine of Christian liberty, choosing in such a way that we were fully convinced in our own minds as to what we should be doing. We were forced to discern, too, what was good and what was wrong in the media that we were being pummeled with. Some of us still struggle with that, and uh, it's always going to be something we have to practice in our discernment, and I encourage you to keep practicing that discernment. Many, many, many things that you hear, especially early on or from certain sources, are just flat out wrong or built on wrong assumptions or only partially true, and so we have to be very cautious in how we receive information. I perceive also that some of us were and still are too fearful. I am making a value judgment as your pastor. Some of us are and and were too fearful. And I feared that if a worse trial comes along, maybe I shouldn't use the word I fear, (laughs) haha. I'm concerned that if a worse trial comes along, Some of us are in danger of folding up. Are you content with disobedience to the Lord? That kind of contentment is not the kind of contentment we've been calling for in our preaching. Never be content with disobedience to God. We must know the gospel truly to overcome the fear of death. If we're gripped by the fear of death, then we must consider, do we really know the gospel? Do we really know the gospel? Are we like the saints of old who could face death and die well? Or are we a modern, wimpy version of that that cannot face it because we think we can, oh well, as I'll say in my message, I think this morning, we can grasp immortality with our medical science, that kind of idea. We have to truly know the gospel. On April 26, 2020, almost two years ago, I said these words, quote, the reality is that SARS-CoV-2 is here to stay. I wasn't a prophet. I just knew how things go, and when there's a disease that's so widespread, it's not going to disappear like that, that kind of a disease. We can't do so, or we have to deal with it, I said, continuing the quote, and we can't do so by quarantining for the rest of our lives. End quote. I said this at a time when people were hoping that we would be able to rid ourselves of the virus completely. That was then and still is today a pipe dream. It's unrealistic, very unrealistic. We've learned, too, how to be more careful about spreading germs and living with disease, but the societal cost has been quite high, and its effects will only become fully known in the future. I was uh, I just picked up a few little facts and observations. Uh, you know, in certain reports, reading scores are way down for young children. Um, so social development for young people has been stifled. Tech and media have grown more influential in our lives, and I don't count that to be a good thing at all. Um, the economy obviously has taken a big hit, and we could probably add to this list a few other things as well. There are also sobering statistics. In Michigan, over 35,000 deaths are attributed to COVID-19 on 2.36 million cases out of a 10 million population. So that would be 23%, a little more, almost 24% of the population has a known reported case. Now, there are certainly probably other cases that weren't reported. People didn't want to do testing for various reasons, but... To me, that indicates there are a whole lot more people who are, um, how can I say, uh, at risk for getting this bug, just the way that it is, over the next two or three flu seasons. There's a death rate of 1.487% in Michigan, which is much less than initially feared. You remember the numbers out of Italy? I remember them like yesterday, 11% 
I mean, if there was a pandemic that really had that final death toll, that would be terrible. Terrible. I mean, times, you know, a thousand. Uh, it's bad enough as the statistics is what I'm, or what I'm saying here, but uh, the U.S. average uh, is 1.2%, 1.2% according to the numbers. The number of cases is probably quite a bit higher, of course, so the death rate is probably quite a bit lower. Uh, in the U.S., you know how many deaths now? They don't report it every day. We've kind of lost track of that, 965,000. I've already spoken about my concerns about some of the counting mechanisms. But uh, the fact is, uh, I, I, to me, as I look at the numbers, there's no doubt that a lot of people have died from this disease. A lot of people have died from this disease. And uh, there have been nearly 80 million cases in the United States, over 6 million deaths worldwide. The Spanish flu back 100 years ago is, is estimated to have taken, by contrast, 50 million lives, 6 million and this one, 50 million back then. Of course, the world population was much smaller. So can you imagine the horror of that? Stories that you read of people who become sick, became sick in the morning, and by the afternoon they were dead. That's terrible. But for a sense of scale, there are 73 million abortions per year mm -hmm. in the world. And that same two-year period, nearly 150 million then, just short of that, abortions, in the same two-year period when six million people died of COVID. It's obvious which area needs more of our attention, isn't it? I'm thankful for some relief. Uh, look at the Washtenaw County graph, and the uh, graph is not quite in the basement yet, but it's getting close. And I appreciate that very much. I'm sorry I can't show this to you because I don't have the projector going. But uh, if you've looked at that, just look up Washtenaw County COVID data and you'll see the graph there about two-thirds of the way down the page uh, that has the cases now are about like they were uh, last summer now. So hopefully it will stay that way. And uh, that's a very good thing. So I'm going to leave that uh, for now and uh, we'll address any questions you might have about that. Later, but now let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 3, please. Now, I don't have any notes for you today in the bulletin. However, um, you might remember we left three or four pages last week of the notes that you can look at, and I did edit those notes, so they are available on the church website in a revised format. And you'll see that I've added a couple of sections in the midst of the earlier material uh, that we've already gone over. Um, and the notes probably were on page six or so of the notes that you had, somewhere in there. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of get us up to speed here and, and try to finish the rest of this. But we're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and then we might touch on also... Uh, the next few verses. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, As for the rest, or finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I, might, I, I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. We'll get there in a moment. We, we uh, reminded ourselves last week that we're called to rejoice in the Lord. And I want to highlight that for you today again, because if you look at verse 1, you see that it says rejoice in the Lord there. I want your eyes to see this, not just to hear it from my lips, your eyes. Then look at verse number 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. In the space of three verses, this idea of rejoicing in Christ is mentioned twice. Why is the Apostle Paul doing that? Well, let me connect it to the context for you. We might, we might like lift it out of the context and say to ourselves, yeah, Paul, you preach it. We're supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to be happy people. We're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. 
The Lord is our ground of rejoicing. He is our aim of rejoicing or our focus. You know, why can we rejoice? Because of what Jesus has done and who he is. And where should our rejoicing be focused, like in our worship? Where should our service be focused? Well, toward the Lord. Our lives are all about Christ. They're built upon him and they're aiming towards him and they're going to end up with him. And so that's wonderful and good. But the connection to the context, I believe, has to do with the fact that he's warning them against false teachers. Now, what are these false teachers? These false teachers are what we call last week and are commonly known to be Judaizers. I said last week that in kind of the most clear way that I could figure to say that they're not believers, these Judaizers, are not believers in biblical Judaism, nor are they believers in Pharisaic Judaism, but they're they're kind of a morphing of that Pharisaic Judaism with Christian terminology and, uh, and kind of adding the Messiah in, but requiring obedience to the law, requiring circumcision. And the Apostle Paul has been dogged by these false teachers for his whole ministry. Everywhere he goes, they go. Everywhere he goes is affected by what they're saying. Everywhere he goes, he knows they're going to be there after him if he uh, leaves, and uh, even, maybe even if he doesn't leave. There are people who didn't listen to the results of the Acts 15 church council. Remember that in Acts 15, the question was, does somebody need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? And the answer from the council was a resounding no. By the, by the Holy Spirit working through Pastor James, Paul, Peter, and the other apostles, they all decided that is not God's will for the Gentiles to have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so Paul is working to insulate the Philippian believers against this false teaching, and he's going to do so in part with the doctrine of rejoicing. I'll come to why in a moment. When he says to beware three times, he says beware of dogs, evil workers, and mutilation. What he's doing is he's taking the Jewish Judaizer concepts that they had at their core and flipping the script on them. They would call the unsanctified, non-law-keeping Gentile as a dog. Okay, they looked at them like scavengers, like subhuman. Paul turns the tables on them and says, actually, no, these are the dogs. You beware of them. Because they're false teachers, they're false prophets. Like in Isaiah, we pointed out a passage there last time that talks about uh, the false prophets under the figure of the dogs. Isaiah 56.10 is what it was. It's in the notes for you when you, if you look online or have your copy from last week. Paul turns the words on themselves, turning what they thought into its opposite, which was in fact the truth. They were the ones who were incorrect and wrong in their estimation of things. Then he says, evil workers. What did they think of themselves? Well, they think of the opposite. They thought of themselves as doing good. They thought they were doing good works. And what does Paul say? That's not, what you're teaching and what you're doing is not good works. It's evil works. Far from being doers of good in their pursuit of Torah righteousness, or what some call Torah observance. Do you know what the Torah is? The law of Moses. We could say the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Torah observance. And people who are the Judaizing type would require Torah observance either to be saved or to be sanctified. In so doing, they were, in fact, doers of evil. The tragedy of doers is that they think they're on the right path when they are precisely not on that right path. They are actually evil workers. And then finally, he talks about the mutilation. <clears throat> the mutilation. We said this is a play on words for circumcision. It has the same root in it. Instead of the circumcision, it was like the hackers, the cutters. Later on in Galatians, he talked about 
uh, said, look, they should go all the way and emasculate themselves. That's a very nasty way of, of, of expressing how bad their false teaching was. But it was necessary to get to wake up the people in the receiving end, like the Galatians in that case. And I want you to notice, when he says, beware of these hackers, beware of these mutilators, beware of these cutters, he's saying, if you're accepting circumcision in their system to mean that you're agreeing to try to be a law keeper to please God, then you're departing from Christ. And I want to remind you of something I discovered in restudying this this past week, uh, of 1 Kings 18.28 and related passages. 1 Kings 18.28. This is in Elijah's confrontation with the prophets on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and the others. And they, he, he presented this challenge to them, and they went ahead and, and did that. And Second Kings 18 and verse 28, they're crying out to their God, and they're trying to get him to wake up and listen and send a fire down. And it says in 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. In the Old Testament, it was the pagans who cut themselves. The pagans cut themselves indiscriminately. And Paul is saying, you guys are no different than the cutting pagans. He told the people of Israel, for example, the priests, uh, if a dead relative dies, you're not to cut yourself. Cutting was like an um, a, a expression of deep grief. And I've listed Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 19, and Leviticus 21 there. I'll let you look those up. But, you know, we don't, I don't understand this. I mean, it seems like completely foolish and ridiculous. And, you know, somebody asks me, like, that is, that's kind of an extreme example. But other things like modifying your body you know, in certain ways like that, like this, um, I say be happy with what God's given to you, you know, about the tattoo issue and about this marking with cuts and, and all of these sorts of things. Be happy with God, with, with what God has given to you. Uh, that's a real problem. Nobody's content with what God's given them, you know. They, they're, they either think of themselves as too, too whatever, too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, too light, too dark. You know, if, they're, if their skin is light, they want it tanned. If their skin is dark, they want it light. Well, why? <laughs> Just be happy with how God has, has made us. But that's a little off the beaten path here of this message. All I'm saying is that Paul is saying, you guys, you cutters, you false teachers, Judaizers, are basically no different than the pagans who are cutting their flesh in the Old Testament in various ways. Now... Um, Back to Philippians chapter 3. So Paul is saying, I'm warning you against these false teachers. I want you to instead uh, rejoice in the Lord. You've got to be different than these false teachers. The focus needs to be directed away from the false teachers toward what we're supposed to be in Christ. And if we fill our attention with that, we will not have an inch of room for false teaching. And here's the connection. Let me try to make it now with rejoicing. If you are rejoicing in Christ Jesus, if you are rejoicing in the Lord, what does that mean again? The foundation of your joy is the Lord and what he's done. The aim of your joy is, is Christ himself, God through the Spirit. If you are really rejoicing in him, you will, like, kind of like I said just a moment ago, don't, you won't have any room for false teaching. Anybody that comes along and says Christ is not enough you're saying, wait a minute, my whole life is rejoicing in the enoughness of Jesus Christ. I am totally satisfied in him. I am not going to be wooed away by some false lover who tries to get me into spiritual adultery or what we call idolatry because I am satisfied in the one to whom I'm connected. My God is good enough for me. My salvation in Christ is perfect. I need nothing else. 
I don't need circumcision. I don't need to keep the law of Moses. I don't need to keep some external code. Of course, I will be holy because I love him. And his spirit is working in me, transforming me from what I was into what I am and what I shall be. But I'm not living under some law code to try to add merit to God, to what God has done in Christ, because I'm fully rejoicing in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the connection to the false teaching in the context. You will be insulated from false teaching if you have a high view of Christ. Somebody comes along and they say, look, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do these sacraments. And you're saying, wait a minute. That's not the Christ that I know and rejoice in. That's not what I've been taught from the scriptures. I'm not going to be fooled by that for a minute. But if you are, if you've kind of fallen away a little bit, if you kind of forgot your first love, if you've kind of, uh, you know, left the rejoicing behind and you're full of complaining and looking for something better and it's not good enough and I need something more, you might be open to false teaching. Some prosperity gospel guy comes along and says, if you do ABC, then you'll get this. And you'd be like, hmm, that sounds attractive. But if you're enamored with Christ, it will not sound attractive. It will look ugly. You know, the, the, most, the most beautiful attraction away from your spouse should look ugly to you because of what she represents, gentlemen. Women, the same. And, this, and I'm using that as an illustration to say anything outside of Christ should look dark and, and deadly and dangerous to you because you love him above all else. So when the Bible says rejoice in the Lord, it's not just a command to be happy. Yeah, we should be happy. We should be because we have the best thing going in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to say, after the beware, oh, by the way, let me, let me uh, say something too about the end of verse 1, just to remind us. He says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. What we said there before was that he's probably spoken to them about these matters of false teaching before, and he's already alluded to them earlier in the letter, but now he's going to say some more, and he says, look, for me, this is not a problem to review this. Uh, and for you, it should not be a problem either. When do you learn something the most? The most, uh, how can I say, in depth? If you just kind of read through the book once, or suppose you get really interested in the subject matter. You know, you've got some textbook or some instruction manual or something like that, and you read through that thing, and you go back and you read through that thing, and you read subsections of that thing again, and you become an expert in it. Something that you've excelled at in your job, for example, and you just know it like that. Did you know it like that because you saw it once and it was done? No, because you went over it, and you read it, and you practiced it, and you thought about it, and rehearsed it, and saw other people do it. How much more the Word of God you don't just get it once and done. We, we have to review, review, review what the Lord has done and what he has said to us. And it's, it should not be any kind of tedium for us to review those truths. And we'll always go deeper in them. We'll always learn more, realize facets that we didn't realize before. I mean, we looked yesterday with the men at a couple of verses in Scripture, and I bet some of them had never looked at those verses that way before. You know, we looked at Genesis 1-1, like I did with my brother the other night. And, uh, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to think about if you stop and think about what God is saying. Well, what are we, what are we then, if we're, if we're not, uh, you know, to be, to be kind of involved with these false teachers, obviously, Paul says... For we are, verse 3, sorry, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is where I didn't get to last time. We said, um, first of all, that we are the circumcision. We're the true circumcision. Let me review, not tediously. 
What is circumcision again? I'm talking about spiritual circumcision. It's regeneration. It's taking out the heart of stone and putting in the, fill it in, fill it in in your minds, the heart of flesh. When, when Paul says the circumcision made without hands, non-surgical circumcision is the circumcision that God works in the inner life of a person to transform them and give them a new being, a new nature, if you will, a regeneration, a new life. And so that's what we are. We don't need an external mark on the body. We have the internal mark of the Spirit who has worked in us to transform us. And then we are the ones who, first of all, worship God in the Spirit. We render spiritual service to God. Now, you might think worship means like singing. You know, what do you mean? I got to go around singing to God all the time? Um, No, in fact, all service to God is worship. You serve God by helping your neighbor. That's this kind of worship. You uh, serve God uh, by giving, by, by, by doing something in the church, by witnessing, by uh, having a missionary in your home, by offering hospitality to your brothers and sisters. That's all worship in this sense, service to God. It's priestly work. Priestly work is what we're talking about here. And I do think this is worship uh, of God in the spirit, capital S. Uh, I don't think it's worship of God in the human spirit, lowercase s. And why is that? Well, it's interesting that you have God the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, and in the next phrase you have rejoice in Christ Jesus. You have the Trinity right here in a single small verse. The point is that the first mark of a true believer that Paul gives here of the true circumcision in Christ is that we render service to God. Our lives are one of serving the Lord. So if you want to know, am I a believer? Well, ask yourself this, do I worship God in the Spirit? Is my life like that? Secondly, the second mark of a believer is that we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, I've already gone over this at some length. All the credit for our salvation goes to Christ. But the rejoicing, could I say this? The rejoicing is ours. We own that rejoicing, that boasting. We boast in him and we're happy to be rightly related to him. We, we in a way, we say we take pride in knowing our connection to Christ, not in a sinfully proud, prideful kind of way. As you know, pride, sometimes pride can be used in a good way, many times in a bad way but in a humble way in which we recognize that all we have is because of Jesus. He fulfilled the law that we could not. In him we are in God's sight as those who have kept God's ways perfectly. Thus we rejoice. We rejoice in our actions and our attitudes on the basis of what Christ has done and and we point our rejoicing in his direction. You know, don't boast in what you know. Don't boast in how rich you are. This is... Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Don't boast in your wisdom, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness and justice or righteousness in the earth. That's the kind of rejoicing. And so the question is, in our rejoicing, that, that rejoicing that insulates us from false teaching, is Jesus your highest joy? Or do you have a little open door there for false teaching to come in? We have the triune God here prominently displayed. We worship the Father by the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. You can't get any better than that. There's nothing more that you need. And then the third, that's the second mark of a believer, that we rejoice in Christ. The first is that we worship God. We serve Him in the Spirit. And a third mark that Paul gives is what? We have no confidence in the flesh. We cannot boast in ourselves. The third mark of the believer is a no confidence vote in the flesh. I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. Fleshly confidence is trusting in what man can do on his own, apart from God and in religion or anything else. The world is full of this today. Humanity thinks that the keys of death are just beyond our medical reach. 
if we could just cure cancer and a few more pharmaceutical uh, concoctions to help heart disease, we could really do it. And, you know, soon they say, humanity will live to 120. Give me a break. We don't even make it to 80 yet. And we're working at it double overtime and spending trillions of dollars trying to accomplish it. We think that we can control the world's affairs with education and politics. This is confidence in the flesh, my friends. We think that science can direct nature or solve nature's shortcomings and so forth. To adapt a phrase from Abraham, there is little fear of God in this place. Now, he, he was going and, and he ended up saying, because there's little fear of God, no fear of God here, I'm going to lie about my wife. We, we don't use that as an excuse to do some wrong thing, but that little phrase, there's little fear of God here, is correct. There's little fear of God here in this city, in our society. The Jew trusted in his genealogy, his circumcision, his keeping of the law, his part of being the favored nation. The Gentile trusts in his religious works, his own inherent goodness or his intellect, his idols. But none of this saves a person from the awful consequences of sin, the penalty, nor the practice of sin. To put it plainly, Paul's concern, which will become even more clear in the upcoming verses, is that Torah observance is not another way to achieve the righteousness of God. It is a futile attempt. Keeping Torah does not save nor sanctify anyone. Keeping the New Testament commandments of God is connected to sanctification, but it is the Spirit who sanctifies and creates in us a willing spirit to be obedient to the Lord. We obey because we love, not because we have to keep some commands to merit favor with God. Romans 4.2 and Ephesians 2.9 make it abundantly clear that boasting in the flesh has no place in the Christian's life. Romans 4.2, what did Abraham find? He believed God and God credited to him for righteousness. He, he, in fact, that happened before circumcision in his life. And Paul uses that to say there's no boasting. What about David? No boasting in, for David. Ephesians 2.9 talks about in the sandwich between 8 and 10 that for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest what? Anyone should boast in their flesh, basically, is the idea. The only reason that we are saved is because of the grace of God in Christ alone. The only reason that we are saved is because of the grace of God in Christ alone. There's absolutely no reason in us that obligates God to save us. Do you agree with that? You're not saved in a Christian because you're an American or because you're in the 21st century or whatever. Are you a product of the 20s? Nothing. There is nothing in us that obligates God to save our souls. Absolutely nothing. Only because of the grace of God in Christ. These phrases describe the manifestations of true belief, namely right worship by the Spirit, like John 4, 24 talks about. We worship, uh, God seeks worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Uh, it talks about our right focus, boasting in Christ Jesus. The exaltation of the believer is not in ourselves, but in another one outside of ourselves. And the underlying difference between the false teachers and Paul and us Christians is really pointed out in that last phrase, no confidence in the flesh. They trusted or depended upon their flesh to be a saving and sanctifying element. True believers don't rely on anything other than Jesus Christ, but the fact the false teachers were relying on and trusting in their flesh they were literally true, that was literally true, rather, and when they trusted their circumcision, they were trusting their flesh, that circumcision fleshly element. But it was also emblematic of their whole approach to religion, namely that it was externally focused. See, they took the biblical Judaism with all of its rituals and all of that that talked about the, uh, the uh, cleansing of the flesh and external ceremonial cleanness, and they applied that to their life and forgot the inner heart of the matter. 
And this contrast of approaches, the flesh-based versus the Christ-based approach, sets the stage for the next eight verses in which Paul gives an autobiography of his spiritual condition. He contrasts his former fleshly confidence with confidence in Christ. Now, he was a top expert in religious piety before he met the Lord. He had an extreme religious makeover, however, when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He realized that all of his previous piety was worthless. In effect, Paul had been one of these evil worker false teacher types. Although his piety wasn't clothed in Christian terminology like theirs was, but he was a quintessentially Pharisaic Jew. The basic philosophy of confidence in the flesh was the same. And so in verses 4 to 6, what we will study next time, Paul's talking about his former confidence. I might also. In fact, he says, look, on the grounds that they boast in the flesh, I can outstrip them by far. I, I, I was the top of the class, front row. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. If you got, and, and, and what happened was, he was so advanced, we could say just kind of in a human way, he, got, he became so advanced that he realized that all that stuff was worthless, and he went to the next class. These guys were still in the previous class, as it were, stuck in this idea of confidence in the flesh. What things were gained to me, verse 7 says, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them, listen, as rubbish. That's a strong term. In, that's dung. That's, that's trash, garbage. Junk, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I'll stop there. He's going to go on and talk about his new confidence in Christ and how he strives to grow in knowing the Lord. So check yourself out again against verse 3. Make sure you have the right focus. Your boasting is in the Lord and not your own fleshly accomplishments. Make sure you are, in fact, serving the Lord. Are you a humble person, even if you've done well? Even if you've done well in school or in work, in life, are you humble and recognize that's all from the Lord? Um, Make sure that you are, in fact, serving Him. Are you wary of bad doctrine? Are you full of joy in the Lord so that you're insulated from that false teaching no matter what your circumstances are so that any religious teaching that draws your attention away from Christ will be sickening and of no interest to you? I trust that's the case. Let us do as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And he'll say again later, again I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for an opportunity to review again the Word of God. Thank you for these folks who have kindly listened to this exposition of Scripture, and I pray that it's been of some help to their souls. For, Lord, we go out of here facing a world that is dark and un- unfriendly to our system of belief, unfriendly to our Jesus Christ, unfriendly to our God. And I pray that you would help us to live for him and be a good testimony shining the light of the gospel in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.